0: Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Bill Goldstein, the 12th director in the history of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, whose mission is to apply cutting-edge science and technology to enhance national and international security, with a special focus on deterring, detecting, and responding to threats of weapons of mass destruction. Bill also serves as president of the Lawrence Livermore National Security, where he leads a workforce of approximately 6,500 employees and manages an annual operating budget of $2.1 billion. In this episode, Chad and Bill sit down to discuss the expanding mission of the laboratory, the various projects the lab is focused on on a day-to-day basis, and the need for more risk-taking and innovation in our culture.
1: Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chad. It's great to be here. So we're excited to have you on. Lawrence Livermore Labs has been on our radar for quite a while. It's a fascinating place filled with fascinating people, and you're the director there. So we're excited to have you on. When people ask you about your job, about your role, how do you usually introduce yourself and describe it?
0: I actually always introduce myself as a physicist. Um, that's how I was trained. That was my vocation and my avocation. Um, and I like to think, think it still is. It's the, uh, the things I learned about physics and, the, and the, my appreciation of it my love of it that I like to think what I bring to bear to running the laboratory and why it's uh, so rewarding for me science generally is is what I feel committed to. Advancing science and making it work for for humanity is what uh, gets me up uh, in the morning. And and that's what I, that's what we try to do at the laboratory.
1: And when did you first hear about Lawrence Livermore Labs and when did the labs get on your radar?
0: Well, that's taking me back. Probably, I would say 1984, 1985. um, I probably heard about it before, but I was at the time a postdoc at Slack uh, nearby. And uh, I was uh, looking for um, another job after my postdoc. And uh, a, someone I knew who was working at the lab uh, suggested that I interview there and consider it. At the time, many may not remember this or have been alive that long ago. The country was in the middle of a debate and uh, a scientific enterprise looking into whether nuclear weapons could be defended against, and in particular, whether x-ray lasers could be used as part of a defense against uh, nuclear missiles. And uh, Lawrence Livermore was um, a leader in in looking into that. They had a very active program researching x-ray lasers. It was a fascinating, it was and is a fascinating field. The very first x-ray laser produced in the laboratory was done at Livermore in a, I think about 1987, it really was the uh, the center of this very exciting new scientific uh, endeavor. And that, that's what attracted me to the lab. And in fact, I went there and joined that program.
1: And uh, you mentioned SLAC. Is it an acronym or what's... Uh... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, SLAC, it was the
0: Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. So it's the, um, the laboratory, the accelerator laboratory associated with Stanford. It actually is another one of the national laboratories, Lawrence Livermore being one. If you... Uh, Try to look it up now, it's actually the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory is the tr- actual name of it.
1: And let's uh, back it up even further, if you're willing to dive into those waters and talk about physics. How did you first get exposed to it? And uh, how did that love for physics and science develop?
0: Well, it was um, in high school, it was the uh, hardest uh, subject I took. And uh, I think uh, it was the challenge of being able to understand it, that... Uh, First attracted to me to it. As I continued to study it, um, it was really the um, beauty of the mathematics and uh, the fact that um, so much could be so accurately explained and understood through logic and mathematics was very aesthetic. the uh, The fundamental role that symmetry plays in physics is to me very basic, and and uh, I won't. bore you with talking about my PhD thesis, but it was uh, very heavily drawn out of uh, group theory and, and symmetries in physics. So
1: Maybe just the abstract?
0: No, no. I, okay, no. fair enough. You fair, enough.
1: fair enough. So after you get to the labs, I'd be curious to know what were those, your early years there like?
0: Well, to tell you the truth, my early years there were learning to use a computer. So I was trained as a theoretical physicist, and um, at least at the time, computers were not heavily, uh, were not a major part of the theorist's tool set. Um, it was more um, blackboards and pencils and paper. The laboratory is uh, justly, I think, uh, renowned for and, and, uh, um, and relies heavily, tremendously heavily on computers and computational power uh, to do its work. And uh, so one of the first things I did was learn how to uh, to use the computers, um, which was an interesting experience of, of its own. It required a kind of a reorienting of the way I think about how to do science. Some of the first work I did there was to uh, use the computers to do very, very complex, large models of atomic systems that could actually be lasers in, in the x-ray regime. This was um, work that Um, We could only model using the large computers, and then we also had the experimental capabilities of the laboratory to do the experiments that would then validate the concepts that we looked at on on the computers. So that that was sort of the earliest work I did. It was very, very gratifying, both because of the scale of the problems that we could do, but also the ability to work closely with the experiments and actually see the results coming in in real time.
1: Was that exciting for you to start to learn how to use these computers and systems to model things? But I would imagine that it would be very exciting to start to extrapolate out where the computers will be in 10 years and 20 years. And so you can start to imagine all these problems that formerly might've been intractable now might be solvable in 10 years and 20 years. Did you have a sense of where the technology was going and were you and your colleagues kind of aware of that or... Did it feel like a bit uncertain future for the computers and technology?
0: Well, I would say at the time uh, that we're talking about, the computers I was working on, even though they were probably amongst the largest in the world, didn't have as much processing power as our iPhones do now. So if you're asking whether I imagined that that would be the case, uh, no, probably not. We were always looking at how to get more out of computers. The lab has historically followed a path of trying to uh, create new computational capabilities, uh, ever faster, ever larger, working with vendors um, across the, the vendor space to enable that to build the, the largest computers. So um, there's been a, a um, I think, very orderly progression of power. However, there have been several breakpoints along the way. It is actually easy, very easy, to look at uh, to see Moore's law at work in the way computer power has has uh, has progressed over the years. But the architectures that have been necessary to take full advantage of Moore's law have evolved over this time. We we moved from the uh, the, the mainframes that I started using the uh, uh, the Cray uh, at that time, the uh, Cray One, Cray Two, Cray XMP computers, to uh, uh, this era of killer micros when uh, uh, microprocessors. Standalone microprocessors were actually the, uh, the computers of choice starting to get into the massively parallel uh, regime, the message passing regime, when we started to put, a, get, put together these uh, microprocessors into uh, coherent uh, computing systems that used uh, techniques like message passing to keep themselves in, in, uh, in lockstep, the, right, the processors in lockstep. And then those architectures have evolved. We went through a, a period where we were uh, actually working closely with IBM on the Blue Gene. Uh, what they called the Blue Gene uh, architecture or technology. Uh, and we rode that for several uh, uh, generations of computer for some time. And and uh, actually right now, we're actually in a new, I think, a new paradigm for this high-performance computing, this absolute top-of-the-scale, most powerful machines, where we're coupling basically CPUs to GPUs, to, to graphical processing units. Actually, the same units that are used for gaming mm-hmm. are being used now for scientific simulation. Um, and the application of these a- has really opened up a completely a-, a new trajectory in the power of the computers that we use. So I'm not sure this was all foreseen in 1985. Today's an interesting time. We're facing, we're quite possibly facing the end of Moore's law. The feature size on on microprocessors has gotten uh, down into the less than 10 micron uh, regime. It's not clear how much further you can go with that, and uh We've actually at the laboratory started to think what happens to computing beyond Moore's law. And there are several things that are on the horizon, um, probably uh, uh, things that in Palo Alto are are heard of all the time, but quantum computing in particular, neuromorphic computing. So uh, there's sometimes called brain-inspired computing, but... Uh, is uh,
1: biomimetic-inspired computing thrown around much, or is that not... Or biomimetic? So um, that's,
0: uh, that is something that we that we look at. Um, it's... Uh, I, I don't think it's actually... So neuromorphic computing is actually f- fairly far along. Uh, quantum computing, interestingly, is um, probably closer than I would have predicted, uh, certainly five years ago, uh, to reality. And biomimetic com- computing, I think, is something that's further further in the future.
1: We've had uh, Alex Gladstein from uh, IR Labs, on, and I think she's doing great work in the space, as are a number of uh, other companies. And we recently got back as well from a talk that uh, Jim Keller gave at an Intel event where there were uh, some executives from Intel trying to strategize and present ways to restart Moore's Law, in, in a sense, and ensure that it keeps going which is all these topics are, they might just sound like they're just about technology, but they're vital to national security and defense and so many different things, which brings us to the mission of Lawrence Livermore uh, National Labs. Originally, it was started to help secure the nuclear arsenal, correct? That's right. And uh, obviously that's evolved quite a bit and there are many missions now. Is there still one central or overarching mission for everything?
0: Well, the the mission of the laboratory uh, is to apply cutting-edge science and technology to enhance national and international security. It's a fairly broad mission space, but there are areas that we specialize in, and uh, the nuclear deterrent is one of those. So if I might um, double-click a bit on that mission statement, our work tends to be in the areas of deterring, detecting, and responding to the threat of weapons of mass destruction. So that includes nuclear weapons, includes uh, biological weapons, chemical weapons, uh, explosives. Um, so we, we actually work across that space. And again, our, our our role is to enhance deterrence, to understand what's going on in the world, so to, to detect and to respond in case there are, uh, are any kinds of events like this. As you mentioned, our, our mission actually uh, uh, began uh, as being focused on nuclear uh, weapons and the nuclear stockpile. Interestingly enough, the lab began with two uh large programs one was the nuclear weapons mission and the other was um fusion energy as a uh a, as a potential energy source
1: this is back in 52 54 or was
0: yeah. that's exactly when the lab was founded sure um and so those were the two programs at the lab and and uh, uh the lab has continued to have a very strong interest in nuclear fusion both uh because of um its weapons work but also because of its uh, potential as a as an energy source in fact the major program at the lab uh even today, continues to be uh, ensuring the uh, safety and reliability of the stockpile. And we're responsible for about half of the weapons that are in uh, the stockpile right now. The mission has evolved um, tremendously, though. It hasn't just broadened to to some of the areas I talked about, but uh, there was a real break that occurred in 1992 when uh, the U.S. ended— It's nuclear testing program. So we are no longer developing new weapons. We're no longer testing the weapons that we have. So the challenge that exists for my laboratory, um, as well as uh, our sister lab, Los Alamos, uh, we actually split responsibilities for the stockpile. The challenge that we have is to make sure that the stockpile is safe and reliable without being able to test it. Uh, And we've been doing this, so 1992, uh, that's what, 23 years. This is the challenge that we face now. These are tremendously uh, complicated devices. They are evolving continually in time. They have radioactive materials in them. They have uh, chemically active materials in them. They are changing every day. They've been aging since 1992. And the challenge of being able to ensure that um, they remain safe and reliable uh, is what drives a great deal of the science at the laboratory, including our need for ever-increasing power of computing. Without being able to do the tests in real life, um, it's essential that we able, be able to simulate the behavior of nuclear weapons with the highest possible fidelity and the most accurate possible physics and chemistry. And we need bigger computers than we have today in order to do that.
1: Yeah, that's a a massive challenge to say the least. Uh, I would be curious to know, how are you going about pulling in your uh, data and then any dark data that you might have or the lab might be generating? Um, And dark data, meaning just any data that's currently not incorporated into models that might be used for something.
0: We continue to do research, fundamental research in chemistry and physics and, uh, uh, and in computer science. And, and these, these continue to push the state of the art that we can apply to our understanding of these weapons and, and of the simulations, as well as uh, all the other areas in our mission space that we, that we work in. This uh, research uh, continues to elucidate the basics of nuclear reactions, for example, the basics of how uh, materials corrode failure of materials over time how do they how do they evolve and eventually fail so uh, material science atomic physics nuclear physics radiation chemistry all of these go into our simulations and our understanding of how these uh, systems are evolving and how they'll behave and as we gain more and more understanding by doing this research, we can feed it back into our models that go into the codes and get a more accurate picture of what's happening and how the aging is occurring and how these systems may behave.
1: Is there any example of maybe a recent discovery that helped you better predict how to secure the nuclear arsenal? Maybe is there anything that you're able to share or perhaps maybe anonymize a certain portion of it?
0: So an an example has to do with one of the most unique and precious resources that we have that allows us to understand the behavior of nuclear systems without testing. And that is a very extensive database of nuclear tests that the U.S. did between, well, 1945, basically, and uh, and 1992. The U.S. did uh, over 1,000 nuclear tests. There's a tremendous amount of information that's um, nascent or latent uh, in those uh, in those tests. And a great deal of work goes into drawing out that information and trying to understand it more reliably and more accurately. Uh, some of the recent work we've done um, has been to better understand some of the nuclear cross-sections. Uh, so let me go back for a second. One of the ways that we um, in the past have measured uh, the yield of nuclear tests was by uh, measuring the nuclear products that are produced in the explosion. In order to relate those nuclear products back to how powerful the explosion was, requires a great deal of theory, and in particular, a knowledge of the nuclear cross-sections that were involved looking at what you started with and then measuring what you ended up with. Um, those cross-sections are, are known with a very high variability of accuracy. So a lot of effort has gone into... Trying to improve the accuracy of those nuclear cross sections, and we've made a significant amount of progress on that in recent years, and actually um, have been able to much more accurately understand what was what was going on in these nuclear tests, and to inform our models and and uh, our ability to uh, to simulate them and and what we think is happening in the in the systems. I think it's just interesting to note that actually all of this nuclear physics work is actually unclassified. So um, all nuclear cross-sections, all work on nuclear uh, physics was declassified um, by Eisenhower oh, wow. back in the 50s as part of the Atoms for Peace program. And so all the work we do on trying to understand these nuclear cross-sections and these nuclear processes, um, which are then applied to what are sometimes very classified questions, are all done in the open and as part of an open scientific community and, and scientific uh, endeavor.
1: How do you, and how does the labs think about that balance between uh, public sharing and keeping some things private, right? Like, because when you're in private, sometimes you can take scientific risks. You're, you're more at liberty to be a bit bolder, but then obviously sometimes things need to be public. How, how do you think about getting that balance right there?
0: Science should always be shared to the maximum extent possible uh, without uh, compromising security. And, and in particular, hiding what you're doing scientifically uh, should never be used to cover up taking risks. My personal view is um, uh, scientific risks should be taken in open in the open, right? Because um, failure teaches us as much as success. In fact, uh, failure in some ways is something that should not be in the scientific lexicon in some sense. I mean, uh, you know, if you do science and you follow the scientific method and you um, explain what you're doing, then the rest of the community can learn from that. So I don't think it's ever a good idea to hide what you're doing. Um, Having said that, there are things that we can't talk about openly uh, because of classification, uh, because of, I think, the very real concern that um, there are things that we know which if we shared openly would provide people who we don't want to have the information with the information necessary to create threats to us and and to the rest of the world.
1: So let's shift gears for a moment and uh, talk about some existential threats to humanity. So this is a topic that our listeners are familiar with. We've covered many on the show, and we could start with the first one, which is uh, nuclear war or uh, maybe cyber terror that results in the detonation of a nuclear weapon or something like that what is the biggest existential threat that you see for humanity right now is it nuclear or is it something else
0: my personal opinion the most significant existential threats that, that uh, the world faces are um, the use of a nuclear device and global warming those are the those are probably the two most uh, in my mind sure the most significant uh, that we face you know the threat of uh, of, of a nuclear event um, doesn't is 't restricted to uh, to nations um, I, I think uh, we, we continue to face uh, the potential that terrorist groups or others with uh, with with um, malintent could uh, do something very terrible and that's actually um, a major part of the laboratory's mission is to make sure that that doesn't happen
1: and would that fall under threat planning or what's the what are the departments like that are, maybe just going through, you know, different scenarios. If this happens, we do this. What does that fall under at the labs?
0: Well, um, so there are significant efforts there in, in non-proliferation, counter-proliferation, and counter-terrorism. So gotcha. the most important way to prevent these things from happening is prevent anybody from having the capability uh, of, of, of carrying out something like this. Again, the lab works uh, significantly in these areas. There are major government programs, uh, first of all, in ensuring that the non-proliferation regime is... Um, uh is vigorous and and successful that is that nuclear materials are are under control that countries or or non-countries uh, cannot carry out the um the steps necessary to create a nuclear weapon uh without being uncovered and um and observed in, in doing it the the work that goes into making sure that's the case r- ranges from uh, work that uh, we do in intelligence and analyzing intelligence reports, up through technologies that are used to uh, uh, to monitor and detect uh, things that are going around or on around the world, uh, including detection of radiation, detecting seismic detection of seismic disturbances, and understanding whether they have to, anything to do with nuclear tests. Uh, understanding the movement of expertise around the world and of uh, the kinds of equipment that could be useful. The laboratory was heavily involved, for example, uh, in the um, technical support to the government in the development of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action um, that led to the agreement with Iran, uh, which was recently um, uh, the U.S. moved away from. But the lab's capabilities um, were, were very well uh, aligned with and... Uh, heavily drawn upon in understanding what the technical and scientific and associated risks with various aspects of that uh, agreement were.
1: And when it comes to cyber defense and cyber terrorism, is there anything you're working on now that's, or the labs is working on that you're particularly excited about? Uh, Are there any situations or breakthroughs that you uh, want more people to know about?
0: So on a day-to-day basis, first of all, um, in, in managing the lab, probably the biggest risk we face is is the risk of cyber attack. We we we're, we're, uh, we handle more than a hundred thousand um, uh, suspicious probes of our networks every every day. Wow! So cyber defense is something that we we actively pursue and put into action. Um, I think very successfully. Um, hand in hand with that is actually a program of research into how to enhance cyber defense, cyber resilience, and the ability to respond to um, uh, cyber trespasses. We've been uh, actually working for quite some time. I would say the the lab was um, actually ahead of its time in the 90s. We started to work on uh, what are called semantic graphs, uh, which were... Um, a way of uh, parsing networks, basically, in a way that uh, enhances the ability to do situational awareness on networks of, of varying kinds, um, including networks of people. But this work has recently been become, become very valuable, actually, in enhancing our ability to do situational awareness on computer networks. And that's one of the uh, major challenges, if you think about it, with, with doing cyber defense or response, is actually knowing what is on the network on networks that can be very large and uh, incredibly dynamic, changing from moment to moment. So understanding what's on them in real time mm-hmm. and how they're interacting, like I say, it's called, you could call it cyber situational awareness. It's, it's kind of the, uh, the basis for doing anything else. Building on that, you actually want to be able to detect anomalies that are going on in, in, in the system that you're looking at. Um, so that, that's an area that we've been uh, very active in and successful with, is anomaly detection and in, in kind of based on these network mapping uh, techniques. A- actually, uh, we, we've commercialized a number of them. Uh, they're, they're in use actually in a number of uh, uh, military commands around the world, uh, these network mapping and anomaly de- 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 uh, detection techniques. Probably one of the frontier areas here has to do with applying machine learning uh, to, these, um, uh, to these problems actually, this, these, tech, these semantic graphing techniques are, are uh, well mapped uh, to machine learning and neural network types of, uh, of architectures and, and programs.
1: And we were talking earlier before we started recording about how machine learning and some of these technologies are being applied to drug discovery in a number of exciting fields. Is there an example with drug discovery where your labs is working on something that you can share?
0: Yeah. So um, actually right now we're in a, uh, a partnership uh both with, uh, with some private companies as well as with uh, the National Cancer Institute, University of California in San Francisco, to uh, use machine learning combined with uh, large-scale simulation of biological systems, so systems biology, to uh, significantly reduce the time it takes to um, discover new drugs uh, given a set of targets. Uh, so this is a problem that uh, you're probably aware uh, typically takes five to seven years, if not longer, uh, for um, uh, new molecules to be discovered um, that are efficacious and safe against uh, uh, biological targets. The The goal of this project is actually to move that from multi, multiple years uh, down to one year. The, the magic sauce, if you will, is not just machine learning, but the scale of machine learning that we're able to do on the largest computers in the world. So right now at Livermore, um, we have the Sierra computer, which is at uh, over 100 petaflops, 120 petaflops or so. The second most powerful computer in the world, second fastest comp- computer in the world. It turns out it's ideally suited to machine learning problems. By throwing the entire computer at, um, at learning with uh, molecules that we have and using it to predict what can be corrected about those molecules in terms of being able to be efficacious and safe, we believe we can we can move this, we really move the needle uh, on drug discovery by many years. We're actually able to combine this. So I think what's unique actually, uh, drug discovery is there's more and more work being done applying machine learning to drug discovery. One of the biggest problems that I think faces uh, making this successful is the amount of data that's available to train machines. One of the things that we're able to do by combining machine learning with the ability to simulate, for example, docking of molecules with, uh, with cells or with targets, is that we can actually add simulation data to real data, to experimental data, um, and greatly expand the, uh, the amount of training data that's available to our machine learning systems. We can actually also guide the kinds of experiments that can be done in the future and optimize them to fill in the gaps that exist in the experimental databases. The computers that we have today, these architecture, which I actually mentioned earlier, this uh, heterogeneous architecture that involves CPUs and GPUs, turns out to be ideally suited to combining machine learning with actual physics simulation, bi- biological, chemical, and physical simulation of systems. That's a real exciting I think, development, right? That's taking place right now.
1: Definitely. And we also want to touch for a moment on uh, forensics, right? Because there are some applications here to a field that uh, previously wasn't as scientific or as accurate as it could be. How are you and how is this being used in the field of forensics right now?
0: Forensics is a major area of concentration for the lab. Um, It's associated with our counter weapons of mass destruction role, Uh, So one of the most important questions that uh, gets asked about any kind of incident involving a nuclear chemical or biological weapon is what was it and who did it? They are forensics questions. Um, They involve nuclear forensics, chemical forensics, and biological forensics. And we work across all of those fields, uh, both basic research but also in applications. At Livermore, um, we have a center called the um, uh, Forensic Science Center Center. Uh, which is one of only two laboratories in the U.S. that is certified by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, um, to do analysis internationally of potential chemical events and uh, provide uh, feedback on what, what actually happened and who might be responsible. Those capabilities are also actually um, drawn on by the FBI and law enforcement at the at the lab, um, and so we do a, a fair amount of work trying to develop new forensic techniques that can be used in the courtroom and by, uh, by investigatory agencies. One uh, very interesting new development has been the observation or the discovery um, that the proteins in human hair are highly individual. So it's actually possible to identify a single individual based on the proteins in a single strand of hair. And also very robust. Hair tends not to degrade, uh, so it turns out it can be very useful in in courtroom uh, applications. This is uh, a genuinely a new development in the in the science of forensics, and in uh, a new tool that can be used in uh, in uh, the judicial system. It's uh, an example of the work we do uh, generally, trying to um, bring uh, the best science possible to the process of forensics. Uh, The National Academy of Sciences uh, about 10 years ago came out with a report that uh, took a very dim view of the uh, scientific basis of many of the forensic techniques that are common in courtrooms today, basically uh, pointing out that uh, very few few of them had strong basis in in scientific uh, uh, proof or demonstration. We have a fair amount of work around trying to actually prove out these methods or debunk them which is in right. fact uh, often the case. Uh, so that that's a significant uh, area of work at the lab.
1: And your sightless ideas as one of your, or maybe it is the top uh, value. Could you expand on that more? And uh, in the Silicon Valley world, I think many of us are used to hearing that ideas are worthless and that seeps in. Unfortunately, ideas are not worthless. They can be the starting point of who knows what, right? So what is, how how do you view this and uh, could you expand on that more?
0: So I've heard that also, that ideas themselves are worthless, (laughs) that innovation is what's important and that's ideas uh, leading to value. That's all fine, but you can't have any of that without ideas. So what I encourage the laboratory to do is to bring forward ideas. Um, This is our seed corn. Um, This is what all of our uh, new ideas are what um, enables us to solve future problems. You can't take the point of view a priori that only ideas that have value um, on some time horizon are worthwhile. Frankly, we have to take the long view. The threats we face are going to be here for a long time. They're going to evolve. They're going to be new ones. Um, And we're going to need new ideas in order to face them. And the scale on which those ideas are going to bear fruit um, uh, can be two years, but it can also be 20 years or 30 years. Uh, And if we don't have that seed corn, we're not going to be successful. Now, having said that, I I have to add to what you said that the second value on our list is impact. In my mind, we wanted to highlight ideas as being a value in and of themselves. But impact is what makes, is in the end what we're all about. So it's ideas with impact that we talk about as being our product. I love it. And some people may call that innovation. I don't know. But to me, it it is all about impact. And, you know, when I talk to people at the lab and when I talk to people about coming to the lab, um, it's the, to me, it's the, both the opportunity to work in an environment that is intellectually stimulating and and encourages new ideas. In addition to that, to be able to see those ideas have a real impact in the real world. And to see that, uh, to have the opportunity to see that happen, I think those are, those go hand in hand and they're both part of the value proposition for our place.
1: So speaking about ideas, I think many executives and CEOs or founders of companies right now feel like it's very hard to advance new ideas uh, publicly. Um, That's a sentiment I've detected in a number of conversations. Do you feel like as a culture, we're becoming opposed or fearful of, of new ideas or... Has this always been the case? Is it getting better? What's kind of the the cultural state of an openness to new ideas?
0: I think it may be more a a situation of cultural resistance and increasing cultural resistance to risk of any kind. When there's resistance to risk, uh, there's almost a concomitant resistance to new ideas and to um, looking at the implications or putting into practice new ideas there's the risk that a new idea will not pan out, will not be successful, will not have an application immediately. Um, that's a real risk. It's a risk that you've wasted money. It's a risk that you've uh, wasted people's time. To me, it's an issue of risk, not so much an issue of ideas. It, it reflects, I, it may be this culture of risk that we've evolved, I think, finds reflection perhaps in the resistance to pursuing and, and, uh, and, and following new ideas. I see that at our laboratory, it's something we constantly have to uh, resist and, and fight, is um, the tendency towards risk avoidance. We have to constantly remind people that failure is part of what they do, that you don't succeed without having failed. And this is something that we've, I think we've lost sight of um, in, in many parts of our society and our government. And, uh, it, it does, it does cause issues with, with, uh, our ability to innovate, have new ideas, see them through, um, talk about them. It's too much of a risk.
1: You hit the nail on the head that that is the root of the, very much the root of the issue is the antidote to that more personal courage.
0: I think that the, um, the problem is systemic. Uh, it exists in our systems, and so the solution really has to be uh, systemic. We have to recognize it. Uh, we have to take steps to uh, address it head on. Its individual courage is, is might have effect in isolated areas, but it's not going to change the, the zeitgeist. Right. uh or the matrix, if you will sure yeah. um uh, so it it's it's, it's I, I think it's going to take um a, a, a concerted and cooperative effort across a lot of like-minded thinking people um who have uh re- realized and understood that there's an issue and uh have the wherewithal and um, uh, resources um to do their part in in, in reversing it uh, I, like I say, I think at, at Livermore, we're trying to address this in in our corner of the world. And, and, uh, um, but it is, it, it's, it's not an easy problem.
1: So I got to take the bait on the, uh, the, the matrix reference, but, uh, what are your favorite films or, uh, depictions or stories of, uh, futures or, you know, sci-fi things is the matrix one. And if so, you know, what are the others? And, yeah, what are, what are you watching and thinking about?
0: I don't, uh, no, I never understood the Matrix. Actually, I, I maybe I, I never was into the the gotcha. movies. I'm not a tremendous uh, science fiction, science fiction buff. I am a big fan of uh, Neil Stevenson, who I, I noticed was a recent guest on your podcast. I discovered him long, long ago. I think uh, I think I uh, first uh, read uh, Zodiac when it first came out, and uh, if if you um, if you study some of his sort early of, you know the uh, Snow Crash and uh, the Diamond Age. I, th- these were, uh, it were incredibly per- percipient. Prescient. Um, I-, I know there are others who have uh, um, predicted uh, or have, have, have in fiction some of the things that have happened, but uh, he- he's been tremendously consistent in um, in accurately. Depicting things that have seem to have come about within about twenty years or so when he when he when he wrote about them, I uh, I I am one of the people who anxiously awaits each new uh, book that he writes, even though it takes me months to get through each one.
1: Same here. And we were talking about a couple before we started. Uh, You recently got to almost the end of fall, right? Yes. So, what do you think about the uh, book? And I'm especially curious about. What new ideas did it help catalyze in your mind? Because one of the best parts about Sci-fi or Stevenson is you leave with not only his ideas, but also some new ideas of your own? Well, first
0: of all, I can't tell if it's science fiction or fantasy. It seems to be ending with a complete uh, fable uh, and, and you know and started with uh, with science fiction. Uh, I find actually interesting connections between the book and machine learning uh, and neuromorphic computing. so the the idea that you can represent human thought, or human thought processes, let me Mm. say, uh, in computer architectures or in software. Uh, But that's sort of the starting place for him. You know, the the book is about actually um, representing human consciousness. In fact, he uses the word soul uh, in a a machine. So uh, I I find it very um, forward-looking in that sense, Uh, more forward-looking than I can imagine, to tell you the truth. But his track record is so good that I I, I, I hesitate to say it's not something that's at some point in our future.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely inclined to agree with you there because of his track record as a practitioner as well. Many people forget that about Stevenson, but he's employee number one at Blue Origin. He joined Magic Leap early. And I, I always trust the writers that are also the practitioners uh, a bit more. Uh, Bill, this has been great. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. If there was uh, one final thought you would want to leave our audience with or... Maybe if there's a question I should have asked you, I uh, would love to hear what that is.
0: Well, I guess if there's, uh, yeah, if given given the uh, opportunity to, to add one Please. thing, I, I yeah. would uh, add that uh, I would say that we are um, uh, looking for people who are interested in pursuing careers in science and technology at the leading edge and being able to uh, see their ideas uh, come to fruition and have real impact um, on real people and on real world situations uh, in, the, um, uh, in the interest of uh, security uh, internationally. As a bit of an advertisement, we, were, um, we actually were rated very highly last year by Glassdoor as an employer. Uh, we were in the top 100 in the, in the nation. we were actually number 24 in the country Congrats. as a large employer. We were
1: Not easy uh, number do.
0: six in the Bay Area. Uh, the only national laboratory that was actually um, um, ranked by Glassdoor. Um, so, uh, and, and um, I think uh, the things that make uh, the laboratory a special place to work in addition to the the special work that we do and um, the uh, ability to um, to explore science and technology at the leading edge Um, is that we pay a lot of attention to uh, balance for our employees, uh, work-life balance, and also to um, educational opportunities. And we're a very large place with a very diverse scientific program that encourages people to move around and to do different things and to take on different jobs in the course of their career. Um, You can work in a tremendously diverse set uh, set of areas, um, during, during a career or during the next five years. In fact, uh, your people working at the lab are only limited, um, I think, in, um, in the range of things that they can work on by their tendency to get so interested in one thing um, that they don't end up looking into other things.
1: Very cool. Are there any specific positions or roles that you're, uh, particularly focused on right now?
0: Uh, I'll say, uh, actually everything from plumbers to data scientists. We're looking for, uh, laser scientists, laser engineers, and technicians, um, physicists, chemists, uh, material scientists, uh, computer scientists, uh, people who are interested in writing software, but also compilers. As I mentioned, um, we, uh, frequently take uh, serial number one or a very low serial number of the newest, most powerful computer in the world. In order to make those productive, we have to work hand-in-hand with the vendors in developing the compilers and the software stacks and all of the um, the very basic computer science that goes into making these computers successful. And they are, I, I don't know if I forgot to mention, the most powerful in the world. So we're looking across the board. We um, have a site, which is uh, jobs.llnl.gov.
1: We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. I would
0: be happy if people would take a look.
1: Definitely. So check that out. Take a look. Bill, thanks for joining us. This has been a blast. We'll have to get you in for round two at some point. Thanks again.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a a real joy.
1: Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.